is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. History made today in Washington as the Senate confirmed Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. She will be the first black woman to serve as a Supreme Court justice. We'll go in-depth into the short- and long-term impacts of the confirmation. Some high-profile lawmakers like Nancy Pelosi have now tested positive for COVID. New York City seeing an increase in cases there as BA2 gains a stronger hold. Are these signs a surge is going to hit the U.S.? And if it does, will we even notice with fewer testing centers around. We'll check in again with a woman in Ukraine who lives in the Russian-occupied city of Kherson. She says she's worried things can get even worse, especially after the destruction in Bucha. The U.N. taking action against Russia, suspending it from the Human Rights Council. And baseball is back opening day for the Angels. And then tomorrow it's the Dodgers. We'll talk with Dodgers great Oral Hershiser about the season and a new gadget meant to stop sign-stealing. We begin with the confirmation of Katanji Brown-Jackson. With us is uh, Marceline Burke, Dean of the University of Oregon School of Law. Marceline, thanks for being with us. So clearly a historic day. Its impact on the court, though, you think will be what? Indeed, it is a historic day, and thank you for having me again on the program. I think Judge Jackson is a brilliant legal mind with really the utmost character and integrity. She has served at all levels of the justice system. So what she brings in terms of depth and breadth of her legal experience will serve all citizens well. What do you think this means to young women of color looking for careers in the legal field? There was a piece I was reading the other day talking about, it was interviewing different people, and one of them said, you know what, I still struggle with with imposter syndrome. Like I go to these great schools and people are surprised I'm here when they shouldn't be. I worked hard to get here. I, I think it does. It, it does a lot of work for us in that regard. However, it, it can't do all the work, right? So this is a wonderful moment in which we are all rejoicing. And I think that part of the, the confirmation process itself demonstrates that we have a lot of work yet to do. I'm glad you brought that up because let's talk about the politics of this a bit. Uh, the president wanted this to be bipartisan. He did succeed in getting three Republican senators to vote in in favor, but the rest of the Republicans uh, held firm and did not. And as you know, the chief justice likes to claim that the Supreme Court is not partisan. But isn't the evidence all to the contrary? I think that I think I would characterize that a, a little bit differently in that the work of the court uh, is, is not partisan. The process clearly uh, to, to confirmation has become over time one that is where you, the lines are drawn pretty firmly um, across the aisle. So while Senators Collins and Murkowski and Romney crossed over that line, um, it, we, we definitely saw that play out in the hearing. Yeah, but it does extend, does it not, beyond the confirmation process? Certainly, you can point, one can point to many different decisions that seem to have, at least on the surface and maybe beneath the surface, a, how should we put it, partisan flavor? 
I think, you know, to make that as a global statement, I would hesitate to do that. I think that the court does change over time, not only obviously with the justices, but perhaps in, in, in the types of cases that are coming before it and the types of decisions that they have to make. And so if you look at the process of how cases get to the Supreme Court, uh, one of them being when there's an issue within the states, which necessarily has political implications, but I would not uh, characterize what the court does itself as one that is partisan. We're not doing ourselves any favors with these confirmation hearings, though, and how you know, hostile they can get. I, I, I think that's right. I think that, you know, I, I, as I think about the hearings, I thought about this moment that Senator Cornyn said that this was a teaching moment. And what is it that we learn from this process? What do those uh, aspiring black girls and black boys learn from this process? What do all children, what do we all learn from the way in which the process was conducted? And I think part of what makes this historic is that having that different perspective, having those different experiences embodied in a person such as Judge Jackson with such a brilliant legal mind uh, makes this uh, appointment um, that's this confirmation that more, more important for our country. Marcelin Burks, Dean of the University of Oregon School of Law. And when we return, if there's a new COVID surge, will we notice? Still to come, we speak again with a Ukrainian woman who lives in the Russian-occupied city of Kherson. She says things are looking worse there. And Russia suspended from the U.N. Human Rights Council. We'll look into what kind of impact that's going to have, if any, on the war. You know, the one thing, Mike, too, about these people that we've been talking to almost every day in Ukraine, and sometimes we circle back, as we are today, with someone that we spoke to a few weeks ago, it's one of those weird situations where you reach out to them and you have to hope that they're still with us. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it, it's a firing it's a text horrible. off into the dark. You, yeah, know, you, ne- hey, you never quite know. If, hope you're doing OK. Yeah. So fortunately, she is. And we'll talk to her. In a, but also amazing that we can speak to these people every day. I know which is something we've commented on before. And yeah. it's just I know they're in the middle of a war, they're in the middle of a war. But it's like, yeah, I've got time. I'm at yeah. home. Uh, Okay, right now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has just tested positive for COVID. Local Congressman Adam Schiff recently tested positive, too, as did the Los Angeles City Attorney. Now, these positive cases in high-profile people show COVID is far from done here. But there's no sign yet, anyway, of a surge in California uh, or much of the country. So how come? And is there a mystery here with us to help clear it up, I hope? Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back uh, with us. So I know that in Europe, they're still doing pretty vigorous testing. We're not doing it as much here. So I guess my question is, how will we know, other than hospitalizations, obviously, but how will we know that there isn't an increase in cases, maybe asymptomatic ones at that, if we're not testing as much now? Sure. Well, we have to remember that, you know, it's not 2020 anymore. So it's 2022, which means that our population has high levels of protection because they've recovered from infection or they've been vaccinated. And protection in that context is protection against severe disease, hospitalization or death. But we have surveillance. So there's wastewater surveillance, which different 
um, communities um, monitor the amount of virus in the wastewater. There's what we call sentinel surveillance, which we can look at uh, positive tests among certain uh, communities or certain uh, patients coming into uh, emergency departments or clinics or people with respiratory disease. So while, you know, we don't have as robust number of people coming in for testing, we do have ways in place where we can monitor the uh, burden of virus uh, in the county. Is there something that's fishy, that's that's different, at least between us and Europe? Because BA2 has been here for a while now. So if we were going to see a surge like Europe is seeing in some spots, would we have already seen it? I mean, did enough of us get the first round of Omicron to give us enough immunity to kind of dodge this one? Well, without a doubt, the uh, you know, evidence and recent studies in the New England Journal of Medicine have showed that people who are both vaccinated and infected with Omicron, um, this hybrid immunity, have very strong protection against BA2. So um, BA2 will find people who are not vaccinated and who did not get uh, BA1 or the first version of Omicron. Um, But there was a lot of Omicron spread and there was a lot of vaccination. So um, that's a a big difference. And also, it's still a little bit early. So, you know, the amount of B2 really did not get uh, to a high proportion uh, until about the you know, second or third, third week in March. It's the end of the first week in April. So a lot of epidemiologists are still carefully monitoring and have a wait and see attitude. But we also heard that there's a lot more treatment available now. I'm on the you know county website. There's over 36,000 doses of this medication, Paxlovid, the antiviral um, that's available in LA County. And people need to know if they test positive, they can get treated. And the sooner you get treated, the better. I'm curious because it almost sounds as if maybe this country failed upwards, that because we'd had so many people not vaccinated and got infected by the original Omicron, that now when BA2 comes along, as you kind of pointed out, between vaccination and those who were not but got it, uh, we may be in a better position. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, typically how, you know, immunity after infection works is that, you know, uh, infectious diseases you know, typically don't keep producing massive and massive waves as the population becomes more immune because there's more spread of infection and recovery. The waves tend to get smaller and uh, further and further apart. Uh, It's still a wait and see game in terms of this virus, you know, how it changes and will those changes cause it to uh, evade immunity or to cause more infections. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor, preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. And a little bit later, we will talk to a woman in Kherson, Ukraine, where Russians are in control. Now, she says she's worried the situation there, especially after what happened in Bucha. And the U.N. does suspends Russia now from the Human Rights Council. But will that do anything to stop the war? Right now, picking up on our discussion from the last segment on if we're going to see a BA2 fueled surge, they are seeing cases rising in New York City. We're going to go to Dr. Jessica Justman, an associate professor of medicine and epidemiology at uh, Columbia Mailman School of Public Health, Columbia in New York City. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So we are a few weeks after lots of masks and lots of regulations uh, being lifted. Some of this, I assume, is to be expected. But are we getting to the point where maybe we are starting to see more of an uptick here? Well, you're absolutely right. This is to be expected. We have two competing events going on. We have a relaxing of precautions, people not wearing masks nearly the way that they used to, 
and we have more and more of this new cousin of Omicron, the BA2 variant, which is a little bit more transmissible um, now really in the mix. So, you know, I think it really remains to be seen. We are seeing an uptick, um, but fortunately a lot of um, people are vaccinated. It would be great to take that vaccination coverage even further than it is, but I, I am optimistic that it's going to be a smaller uptick rather than the kind of big surge that we saw before. And to be as clear as we can about it, are you talking about an uptick in confirmed uh, you know, positive cases, which could mean just people who test positive incidentally and are not ill? Or are we talking about people who actually are positive, have symptoms, and also an uptick in hospitalizations? Great question, and I think it reflects how we have all become just so much more knowledgeable about these kinds of details. Um, I will say anecdotally, I am hearing from colleagues and friends and family about cases with mild symptoms. When we look at the you know, public health dashboards, it's harder to get that kind of precise data right now. There certainly are more confirmed cases being reported every day. But are they incidental or asymptomatic only? I doubt that. Um, usually with this COVID, we get a mix of asymptomatic and symptomatic. So I'm not ready to write it all off as incidental and asymptomatic. Is it moving across all age groups or is there one that's making up the bulk of cases? Sometimes we think, um, you know, younger people, maybe they're less likely to be boosted. They're more likely to go out and do things, be less careful. Well, you're right. The um, age groups that we're seeing the uptick in um, are those from about 25 to 35 years. And then the, in second place is the 35 to 45 year olds. And I would think that those are the age groups who are going out, seeing friends, being less careful than we all used to be with masks. So I think that would primarily explain it. You know, the boosters don't protect us from getting the infection. You know, that initial stage when we inhale it, what the boosters do is they protect us from severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Let, let me uh, also raise another potential red flag here, because I'm sure there are people uh, listening who are in those age groups that you just ticked off who may be thinking, well, you know what, I'm vaccinated. Uh, if I do get uh, the BA2, uh, I'll just have a couple of sniffles for a few days, and in all likelihood, all will be well. But there's an awful lot we don't know about long-haul COVID yet. And we don't know, do we, about whether those so-called mild cases, even among the vaccinated, could end up being a problem somewhere down the road? You're right. We are still learning a lot about long COVID. And most people, especially younger people, are not going to wind up having long COVID. But there are going to be some who will. Um, it does appear that people who have some tendency to have autoimmune diseases are a little bit more likely. People who have diabetes are a little bit more likely to have long COVID. But again, I think we have to watch this space. We will learn more about long COVID as we go along. I did want to mention, though, in addition to long COVID, 
The other thing to think about if you are a younger person who's saying, you know, I just am willing to take the risk, I don't mind if I get sniffles for a few days, is to think about who else is in your network. If you have people that you spend time with in your family who are older or who are particularly vulnerable in their health, you do need to consider, or I'm going to say I really recommend that you consider thinking about who you might spread the virus to that's in your social circle. Dr. Jessica Justman, Associate Professor of Medicine in Epidemiology at Columbia in New York City. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The death and destruction in Bucha resonating around Ukraine. We talked to a photographer yesterday who was in Bucha on Monday, talked about seeing the blood, dead dogs, destroyed buildings. And by the way, uh, he took uh, photos. We mentioned this yesterday, and they're still up on our website, I believe. If you go to knxnews.com, you can see them. Some of them are, are they're horrific, uh, but he's a great photographer. Uh, now, this has people, by the way, uh, in cities controlled by Russia, Scared and worried, the mayor of Kherson recently said there's panic growing in the city as he cited the threat of bombardment. So back with us now is Olga. You may remember we spoke to her about two weeks ago. She's an English teacher in Kherson and is still there with her family. And she told us then about Russians getting violent with protesters at the time. Olga, thanks for coming back with us. You're still uh, hanging in there in in Kherson. Uh, How have things gotten in the past few weeks since we last talked? Well, well, hello. I'm still in Kherson, of course, and I'm really worried even more than before, because uh, after uh, everything what we have known about uh, cities, what was happening uh, in occupation in cities of uh, Kiev region, we are really scared what can happen uh, after these days when. Uh, when the bombarding can start and uh, uh, we are all waiting for our troops to come and they are slowly coming and uh, they are uh, attacking from both sides already, Kherson region and uh, bomb, uh, bombarding is coming uh, very soon, I think. And uh, what how the Russian soldiers will behave after all we have known, we don't know. And people in Kherson have started really panicking and leaving the town. And from nearby villages, people were located, all their troops around Kherson, they start, they also come to Kherson looking for shelters from their, from their villages. Are you thinking of of trying to leave? And and if you tried, do you think you could? Well, you know, lots of people are trying to leave and on their cars, and uh, some of them manage to uh, leave the region, but uh, some uh, they just turned back and they cannot get through the uh, check line uh, checkpoints uh, uh, of rushes. Uh, but uh, my family have been thinking for a long time whether to live or not, and we have come to the uh, decision to leave the town, to leave the house. And we are staying here, uh, really all scared and worried. And our neighbor, our relatives from from nearby village, they came to us uh, 
looking for shelter because they are scared to stay uh, stay in there in the village uh, as the village is across the river uh, and uh, if uh, when the bombing starts the bridge can be broken damaged and uh, that's why they have come to us now they are staying with us how many i'm curious uh, olga how many people are with you now uh, what family members are you living with well, I live with my son, his uh, wife, and uh, uh, their baby, uh, 14 months old, and uh, uh, my uh, uh, daughter-in-law's uh, aunt, mom, and uh, grandma came here. That's why we are here all in our house. What is it like kind of day to day? I mean, how have the last couple of weeks been? Obviously, the, the fear and the worry is starting to escalate, but what is it like kind of one day to the next for all of you guys? Well, you know, uh, it uh, the real fear started uh, after uh, Butcher and uh, Gastomel's uh, photos and uh, all videos, which we could see here, and uh, it it's really start uh, been dangerous. And uh, though we are staying here. Uh, we still have some food, uh, uh, though uh, it, there is problem with medication. We cannot get any painkillers, any uh, anything. Uh, our pharmacies are almost empty, uh, and uh, Russia's uh, they don't uh, allow any humanitarian humanitarian help uh, to her son. Uh, they uh, they they bring some food from. Uh, from Crimea and uh, force uh, people to take it. D are, are there, do you have any interaction at all? Are, are there Russian troops uh, anywhere near where you are now staying in Kherson? Do you actually uh, have any, uh, I don't know, exchanges they, with them? Well, they are uh, going around Kherson easily, and uh, they have lots of uh, checkpoints uh, in the city, uh, they are located in different parts of it, uh, and when we go uh, to to the meetings uh, uh, every Sunday, they are in front of us. We could see them, and uh, uh, while marching, uh, they were shooting their guns uh, uh, in the air. And uh, at the, uh, two weeks ago, my, uh, I don't know whether I told you or not that uh, the uh, these sound grenades were uh, thrown into us. But the last week, uh, Sunday, there was uh, no dispersed with meetings. Uh, they did not do anything uh, uh, at the meeting. The, these meetings, That's, I'm sorry to cut in, but, but the meetings are, are where you go to, to, to protest them being to there? Protest. Yeah. Yes, we protest Kersonians. They protest against their staying here. They protest against their this, uh, thoughts uh, even uh, to uh, organize some kind of uh, Face uh, fake republic here as they first uh, started. That they there were uh, rumors and uh, thought, uh, thoughts, uh, ideas of their implementing rubles, uh, imposing rubles uh, here in our, on our territory, but uh, uh, it failed. Of course, it's uh, impossible. In uh, some villages of Kherson region, they uh, made in the other towns, small towns, they tried to to make people uh, teachers uh, teach in Russian. Uh, according to Russian programs, uh, I'm a teacher. I, uh, we work, uh, uh, we started, have distance learning, uh, and we do, uh, according to Ukrainian, nobody told us uh, yet in Kherson. Uh, 
our Kherson mayor, uh, really keeps Kherson uh, uh, as a Ukrainian city and uh, no vi uh, well uh, violence here, according to uh, to common people. They are searching for. Uh, uh, veterans uh, of uh, war in Donbass. Uh, they have maybe their uh, there's a list of people, and they uh, go around the city. They uh, come into uh, houses, uh, flats. Uh, they uh, kidnap. Uh, they take uh, imprison these uh, veterans if they find them, and that's why it. Um, I didn't go. Uh, I haven't gone outside for a long time, but my kids uh, they went shopping, and they were stopped today. They were stopped. They went by car, and they were stopped by the. Uh, Russians uh, and uh, they looked their, uh, at their uh, passports uh, and let them off. Uh, they check, uh, they stop almost all uh, cars. You said that, uh, Olga, that they go to some people's homes. Have they come to yours? No, no. They they know they uh, maybe they know their addresses uh, or uh, they go to, uh, they go and search for. Uh, uh, war veterans uh, uh, of uh, 2014 at the eastern uh, front in Donbass. And they, uh, they, t they well, just kidnapped people uh, who were in uh, uh, Ukrainian army in, uh, in Donbass region in 14-15. Okay, so they, they take the veterans, but no major violence against, I think you said, no, no violence to the common people, uh, at least... Not yet, but of course, after Bucha, that's that's the huge worry that if yes. if they yes. then if you the guys win and they, they, they withdraw, then then it not, could be the same kind of thing. Not now, not uh, but uh, they they just uh, disperse the meetings and uh, look for uh, uh, military uh, military people, uh, veterans of Ato uh, here. Uh, and yeah, do you get any sense uh, that? Uh, in any interactions that you or your family may have had uh, over the past few weeks with Russian soldiers, do any of them seem to be even somewhat uh, empathetic to to the Ukrainians, to to the people like yourself who live there, or did they just have a a kind of one way of thinking? I don't think that they have any empathy to us. Uh, they uh, they are given maybe uh, some orders just to keep quiet here and not to, uh, not to do any uh, violent actions because the other they they were prepared. They d uh, sometimes I think noticing they don't know what to do with Kherson region and Kherson. It seems to me they just uh, uh, but if, when they leave when they are f uh, forced to leave I I don't know how they will act. Russians are unpredictable now, and we have never thought that this atrocity can happen in other regions. But I know that uh, uh, in Kherson villages, uh, in a different, uh, it's my uh, my relatives say that uh, what they uh, have seen and they know that they just come into uh, this uh, the re the uh, villages which uh, have be, uh, have been liberated, uh, and they were they uh, after they uh, left. They, uh, while leaving, they take everything from the people's houses. It's in Kherson region. It's in, not in, uh, in uh, uh, Kiev region. It's in Kherson region. And they take everything from the houses, uh, uh, microwaves, uh, furniture, uh, clothes, uh, uh, perfumes, 
everything. And the, the woman just called my neighbor, my relatives, and the, she was crying, expressing her, uh, well, just uh, uh, not fury. I don't know what is it. It's uh, this uh, desperation that everything was taken by Russians from the, her home. It's in villages. That's why how they will behave then if they are forced to leave Kherson and they will leave, I'm sure, because that's why I'm still here and I haven't run away. Uh, I think that they will leave and very soon. And how they will act, uh, we are closed, uh, we, uh, our windows are uh, closed completely and uh, uh, we are scared. And, and it's just a couple trips out for, for, for your son and and. and... And, and the wife, and, and you, you must be worried every time they leave and looking out that window until yes. they come back. Well, of course, uh, we uh, just uh, have each, uh, each of us have a key, and uh, when they come, they have ro- their own key, and we don't open doors to anybody now, only when uh, somebody calls uh, on the phone, and then we can open the door uh, to anybody. Uh, uh, that's why uh, it's the, in their state of fear, we are leaving for uh, the last this uh, days, uh, especially especially the last uh, the days uh, after knowing what they uh, have have already done in other regions. That's why it's rather dangerous. It's rather scary. I am uh, feel desperate whether to leave Kherson or not, but still I'm here. Uh, I, I'm curious, Olga. I mean, you obviously have not lived through something like this, uh, nor is your your family, right? Uh, especially your kids. Um, how do you think this is going to, going forward, change your whole outlook on life? Oh, well, yes. Uh, you know, our life is already changed completely, completely it turned upside down, I, I would say. Or maybe uh, it comes to the the proper way of thinking. We now the most valuable things are our neighbor and our closest, dearest uh, people. We have different now values of life. Uh, it's uh, I, every day. I uh, thanks God that I have uh, food. I have roof over, over my head, over my head of my family. That we have somewhere to sleep, that we are in uh, warmth and uh, with the electricity. You know, this we can understand that we cannot, uh, we have taken everything for granted, and now we understand how precious everything is. And uh, that's uh, that my, uh, my son, my daughter in law, she's uh, really my daughter, not in law, but daughter in heart, I would say. My grandson. It's the most precious, uh, uh, not things, the creatures in the world. Nothing else can be wealthier. No money can can value anything. That's why we have to. We have not to get used to every such common things. We have to be grateful that what we have. Uh, and uh, of course, we will all change. We help everybody. We try to uh, uh, get to know how our uh, uh, distant relative are. We help everybody and uh, uh, ask always on the phone what you need. Do you have anything? Do you need something? Well, you know, yes, we have changed. And our future, I, I'm think, I think we will change in the future also. Olga, we're so sorry for what you're going through, but we're glad that, that you have the family there 
together. Um, and thank you again for, for speaking to us again. Thank you also that uh, you uh, I, I just want everybody to know how Ukrainians suffer here and how we want to live and in democratic and free Ukraine. We are Ukrainian here, though being in occupation. And we are waiting for our army. We are waiting for everything but for our usual life without these worries. Olga in uh, Kursan. English yeah. teacher with the family there. And, and we hope to uh, to talk to you again and, and hopefully maybe from a safer position. Welcome back to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia getting punished by the U.N. General Assembly voting to suspend Russia from its Human Rights Council following accusations of war crimes. Russia is the second country to have its membership rights stripped from the council. With us now to discuss all this, Pamela Falk, CBS News correspondent, over at the UN, uh, Pamela, thanks for coming back uh, with us. Okay, so Russia is uh, is off the the Human Rights Council, and you know what question is coming? So what? Uh, so what is that uh, they thought enough that you really would start to think maybe it means something? Uh, so what is that they are getting a message from the international community, and by the way, they really tried to not get this message. They sent out a basically threatening letter telling countries the night before that it wouldn't be seen as good for relations with Russia, an unfriendly gesture, they called it, if they either voted in favor of this resolution or even abstained, because abstentions are not counted. So they cared. Uh, The bottom line is they quit anyway right after the vote, so they they aren't going to participate. This is a 47-nation, let me just give you context before I even answer, because you have to understand this is a 47-nation Geneva-based human rights group that has been sort of hijacked by a lot of human rights abusers. So Cuba's on it and, and Syria's on it and China's been on it and, and a lot of countries that have abused human rights. But the U.S. got back on it so it could launch investigations into war crimes, which they do do, and um, have the moral weight of the human rights agent, the primo, primo human rights agency of the United Nations. So bottom line is, Nothing much happens, but it sends Russia a message that it can't rally the, the troops, meaning nations, around them at all in the world. Okay, so pariah status for Russia for now, but what's to say in five, ten years? Everybody needs them again, needs the oil or whatever, or things have changed, and then we're back to where we were at the, at the beginning of all this. Well, it's hard to say five or ten years down the line, but the point is to just sort of get them the message that in terms of sanctions, in terms of politics, in terms of travel, they're not going to be able to go anywhere. They're not going to be able to buy anything. They're not. I mean, look, is it is it what the Ukrainians want? The Ukrainians want somebody to help them. I mean, this what. Zelensky said here at the U.N. two days ago, and we all talked about it, is, you know, help me fight this thing, because 
you're drawing a line around NATO and NATO gets protected and what happens to the rest and the UN can't act because of Russia on the Security Council. So um, not much happens, but it isn't the accumulation of the world saying, Russia, you're alone. Now, most people seem to look at it today and say, Nothing is going to change anything for Russia other than on the military front. But the military front is also changing because with all these countries not siding with Russia, um, you've got you've got uh, countries helping Ukraine fight the war. But, you know, in, in line of what you just were, were saying, Pamela, I, I keep thinking every time one of these actions happen, uh, so now it's uh, Russia being uh, removed from the uh, Human Rights uh, uh, Council, but everybody always says, well, we're doing this to send a message to Putin. But, I mean, you know, does anybody think he hasn't got the message at this point? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like he cares. Yeah, he doesn't seem to care, but this is all gone together to make countries it's sort of a shaming exercise in some ways i mean why why did south africa fall eventually companies and countries all divested of everything in south africa i it may take a while i mean that's the biggest problem i mean what happens to ukrainians i mean one out of four ukrainians don't have a roof over their head. So um, it's a desperate situation, but it is what the Biden administration has marked as put it all together. And once the world realizes they don't want to be on that side, um, even India, which was sort of on the fence and critical of the kind of torture we've seen of civilians, and just mur- mass murders and bombing of children and the abduction of children, um, all of that got them to stay in the abstention column but criticize Russia. So um, who's going to give Russia money and arms? Uh, the 24 who voted with Russia, and that's North Korea, Algeria, Bolivia, Burundi, Kazakhstan, Mali. I mean, it's not countries other than China that really will help. So the key part of this is China. And the, the Biden administration is going to have to decide what are they going to do with what they call a white knight in in sanctions. If somebody bails you out, then sanctions don't work. Pamela Falk, CBS News correspondent at the UN. Okay, so let's, uh, because the line is written here, it's so poetic, let's just set the scene. So uh, bring in the birds, please. Spring is the beginning (laughs) of new life. The trees turn green. The weather warms up. The birds chirp and of course baseball starts <laughs> colors are brighter food tastes better all that kind of stuff right season was delayed a little bit because of lockout but that's over now angels open tonight against uh, the astros dodgers play tomorrow against the rockies there's going to be some changes this new gadget meant to prevent sign stealing with us is dodger great oral hershizer cy young award winner 1988 world series mvp current color commentator for the dodgers on sportsnet la oral thanks for being here so um this alarm band thing would you have wanted this thing when you were playing? 
armband thing. I love it. Your sound effects are amazing. And now we've got an armband thing. This is really good. This is high-end radio. Hey, man. Absolutely. We, we say it at its best. We spare every expense. Trust me. You spare it. Yes, right. Yeah, you we do. do. <laughs> you know, uh, Pitchcom, it, it has gotten some good results with the players and, and catchers and pitchers that have used it. Uh, the only glitch I've heard about is, I think, Corey Seager in Texas that, believe it or not, in Texas – uh, said on a few pitches, he couldn't hear it in his headband because not only are the pitcher and the catcher able to hear it if they want, but the uh, there's other five fielders outside of that. So four other people, usually like the second baseman, the shortstop, maybe the center fielder are using it so that they can relay the signs to the other guys. And this is to really stop the sign stealing. Uh, had a nice update on the device. It can come in multiple languages and they're working on Japanese, but right now English and Spanish, you can actually record it to your own catcher's voice or your own pitcher's voice if you want. Uh, you can adapt it to a two-seam fastball and a four-seam fastball. You're not just uh, stuck with the basics of a fastball slider curve and change. You can actually turn it into a split finger or a knuckleball. Uh, so it's very adaptable and it seems to be working. So after having gone through this miserable two years of pandemic, not that it's totally over, it's not, but still, do you think that that fans are just now just eager to get back to ballparks and enjoy the game and not have to worry too much about all that? Yeah, I mean, just like economics, supply was low and demand is high. And so all of a sudden it's broken loose, right? And the demand for entertainment and baseball and to get outside and to enjoy sitting next to somebody and not worrying. Uh, I think that it's fantastic that we have baseball back and especially a full schedule. Uh, the lockout, what a blessing that it ended. And, you know, we just pasted a a, a, a homestand uh, on the back end of the schedule and are playing a few double headers to, to play a full season. So it's very exciting to go into baseball season this year. And I can tell from the players and their attitudes, and I'm sure the fans are the same way. So how good are these Dodgers this year? I can question wow. is like, how many games are they going to win? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, they are picked as the favorite in Vegas to win the world championship. Of course they're picked to win the national league West. Uh, the giants nosed them out last year with a, really successful season and i think the the padres and the giants will give them a run for their money but i think the dodgers are going to end up on top and the addition of fills the the hole that we lost with Corey seager's offense there's just a fantastic lineup of mvps up and down the the lineup and if a guy like cody bellinger can have a resurgence if mookie betts can do his normal thing justin turner max muncie chris taylor and now freddie freeman and Will Smith, who's hitting the four hole, he's got numbers like Roy Campanella and Mike Piazza as far as the beginning of their career. So it's a stack, stack lineup. Do you ever get tired of the opening of the season? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. So uh, it, opening day, I didn't like to pitch on opening day. This will be Walker Bueller's first opening day start of his career. Uh, I wasn't big on that because – there's just so much adrenaline. It seems like on opening day, uh, so much can happen as far as some odd occurrence. Uh, I pitched against Charlie Huff in the opening of the Marlins inaugural season. He was starting for uh, the Marlins with that butterfly knuckleball, and I was overthrowing my sinker, and I just got killed. And Charlie is, to this day, still the oldest guy to get hit off me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Oral Hersheiser. Oral, thanks for coming back on the show. 
Oh, anytime, guys. We'll play the birds next time he comes through. Oh, oh cue the birds again. You want the birds yeah, again? Yeah, let's leave people with that spring feeling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> What if these are the wrong birds, though? What if there's some bird expert out there who's like, <laughs> well, actually, guys. Yeah, those birds don't exist these in North America. Aren't from around here. No, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> All right, that's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.